0: And may I speak on that word in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And may we hear in the same glorious name. Amen. In a few weeks' time, um, with my family, we're hoping, we're planning, to be hiking on an active volcano in uh, New Zealand, Mount Tongariro in the heart of the North Island. Um, Hopefully it won't erupt while we're there. Well, this morning's passage, we actually do witness an eruption. Joy erupts from the heart and from the lips of the elderly priest named Zechariah. Now, last week, Adam preached about the moment that changed the lives of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. If you were there, you'll remember, or you may know the story anyway, that the angel Gabriel, sent from God, came to announce that this long barren and now elderly couple will have a baby boy, whom they're to call John. This John is destined to be a prophet, and his job will be to prepare God's people Israel for the imminent coming of the Lord God himself into the world that he made. You might remember from last week that Zechariah's faith faltered in this, the key moment of his life. What the angel announced seemed to him quite impossible. Um, And so, uh, sceptically, Zechariah asks for a sign that this could really be so, that God is really in in, in it. And he gets the sign, except it wasn't the sign, the sort of sign that he would have chosen. What was the sign? Well, he was struck dumb and deaf. For nine months, he observes Elizabeth's growing bump in silence, (laughs) With plenty to reflect on, of course. Well, we just read the event, Pamela just read for us, the the account of John's birth and of John's eighth-day circumcision and naming ceremony. And everybody expects the baby to be named Zechariah, according to the tradition. But Elizabeth defies the expectation. No, she says, emphatically, no. He is to be called John. And then they make signs to Zechariah to see what he would like to name the child. And they hand him the writing tablet, a wooden tablet probably with wax, covered in wax. And he adamantly agrees in his writing, his name is John. And everybody is surprised at the unexpected name. But then they are absolutely awestruck. As suddenly, Zechariah's voice returns and he erupts into this song. Verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. Well, this song, it's known as the Benedictus, and um, it was there, if you're familiar, from the old days of the Book of Common Prayer in the Church of England, it was set for morning prayer every single day, the Benedictus, from its first word in Latin, blessed, Be the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, the song, if you think about it, had a nine-month gestation period, just like John. Zechariah had silently reflected on what was about to happen. And as he did, praise must have risen up with him like bubbles in champagne. But now the cork flies from the bottle. Praise be to the Lord, out it comes. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the people at the naming ceremony were all asking, who is this child going to be? And Zechariah's song provides the answer. And much more besides. Because you see, John is really... Uh, who, John, the son of Zechariah, is only really a relatively small part of the whole picture. He is just the warm-up act. The main event is Jesus Christ. Because it's in him, it's in Jesus Christ that God is coming to visit and redeem his people. And the thing is that Zechariah, well, he knows that Jesus Christ's coming is imminent. It must be because John is on his way to announce it. And and of course, the other thing is he's also aware that Mary, who is a relative of his wife, um, his wife Elizabeth, Mary is a relative, and he knows that Mary is miraculously pregnant herself, bearing the baby Jesus. Well, the inspiring song has two parts. The first part, if you're looking at it there, verse 68 to 75, it looks back in praise to all that uh, Jesus, or to the past, that Jesus is going to fulfill. And then, second half, verses 76 to 79, looks forward in prophecy to the future that Jesus will bring. So let's open our hearts, not just our minds, to share Zechariah's insight this morning as he erupts with joy at the true significance of Jesus' coming. So first of all, let's take the first half of the song and think about the past that Jesus fulfills. The past that Jesus fulfills. Because God's decisive arrival in human history had been long announced announced in advance in the Old Testament writings, as we saw earlier, uh, as we looked at those verses from the prophets. The prophets declared that God would come in one person, known as the Anointed One. That's in English. Or the Messiah. That's Hebrew. Or the Christ. That's Greek. Same thing. The Anointed One. Well, Zechariah, as he sings his song, celebrates two distinct strands of Old Testament prophecy which Jesus will fulfill. So on the one hand, first of all, God promised King David that one of his descendants will save his people and will reign forever. That promise, it was stated a thousand years earlier and the line of David had long since fallen into obscurity. But Zechariah must have known that Mary was a descendant of David's now obscure family. He certainly knew that Jesus' legal father, Joseph, was a descendant of David. He knew it. God's promise to David was about to be fulfilled in Mary's child. Which is why Zechariah says, look at verse 69, look at what he says. He says, God has raised up a horn of salvation. It's a poetic image for the raising up of powerful king. God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. In other words, this one who has been raised up, this Jesus Christ, will reign forever. And that means, if you reign forever, that you are the one who settles the universe's future. You are the one who settles the future of the whole cosmos. No matter what other powers may rise and fall in the meantime, his throne will never fail because it lasts forever. He will be enthroned inevitably as the head over all powers and he will rule from that position for the good of his people forever. Zechariah knows it. Jesus fulfills the past promise to David, the promise of an eternal king. And then there's a second strand uh, that, uh, that, uh, G- of the past that Jesus fulfills. And here it is, it's that God swore an oath to Abraham to bless his descendants and through his descendants to bless the whole world. Now, that promise to Abraham referred to all Abraham's descendants in one sense, But in the end, it was always recognized that it would have to come down ultimately to one unique descendant of Abraham. One who could fulfill the promise. One child of Abraham who would have the authority to bless all the nations of the world. Now, that promise, well, it's even older than the promise to David. It dates from about 1800 years before Jesus was born But at last, Zechariah knows this unique descendant of Abraham is to be born. So, the promises of God, the promises of God's arrival, expressed in these two strands of promise the eternal king descended from David, who will rule forever, the worldwide savior descended from Abraham, who will bless every nation. Jesus' coming fulfills these, and in fact, every other strand of past promise." And as a result, Zechariah, he knows that he and all who follow Jesus stand in a different place to the men of women who live their lives in the days of promise. We live in a different place as well, a wonderful place by comparison. See, I mentioned two strands of Old Testament promise that Jesus fulfills. Well, Zechariah has a great Old Testament event in his mind as well, just here. It is the exodus. The exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And Zechariah knows that Jesus is the improvement. He is an upgraded exodus. And we think, what? Really? Jesus, a greater intervention in God's world than... Defeating the armies of Egypt? Better than bringing God's people through the parted waters of the Red Sea to worship Him at Mount Sinai? Superior to God leading them into the Promised Land? Better than that? Yes. Jesus' coming means look what it means, verse 74. Here's a purpose statement He rescues us from our enemies so that we may serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, in the Exodus, the Egyptians were defeated. But if you know the histories, you'll know that plenty of other enemies arose to threaten God's people. And then when the people arrived at Mount Sinai, they knees knocked with terror as they worshipped. And even then they managed to collapse in almost every generation into the very opposite of holiness and righteousness. So, Zechariah is saying, Jesus has come to transform the situation. He's come to drive out fear with his perfect love. He has come to turn our hearts, the hearts of his people, to obedience to his law by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's come to finally cut off the powers of evil forever. Forever. Jesus will lead his followers to serve the living God in perfect peace and perfect joy forever, which is what we're made for. Now that was the longing of God's Old Testament people, the faithful among them at least. It was a promise of a kind of total salvation that fixes everything. So it's no wonder Zechariah is overjoyed that Jesus, who fulfills all this past promise... ...has come. But now we've got to turn to the second part of the song... ...where Zechariah looks forward to the future that Jesus will bring. future that Jesus will bring. Now, verse 78, look at the poetic image in verse 78. Zechariah describes Jesus as... ...the rising sun that comes to us from heaven. Or if you know it in the old Book of Common Prayer version... ...the dayspring from on high breaking forth upon us. The radiant dawn he is of God's appearing. And if Jesus is the radiant dawn, that makes John the pre-dawn prophet. The pre-dawn prophet. So Zechariah speaks of his own son, John, in verse, 46, uh, verse 76. He says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way. Now, it's important to ask, how will he prepare God's people? How will he do it? What will the preparation involve? Maybe he'll have to train an army to overthrow the enemy. Or maybe he'll have to gather together a political movement. Or raise funds. Or generate publicity. What does it involve? Well, look. The preparation involves getting to the very root of our human problems. Getting to the very root. It, it, God is going to, is, through John, is going to confront the problem of our deep alienation from God, known as our sin. He's going to confront that. He is going to prepare the people to receive the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. And to do that means he will have to confront them with their sin and call them to Repentance. He's going to highlight the broken relationship with God that only Jesus can fix. And then comes Jesus, the rising sun from heaven, the radiant dawn. See, Zechariah has borrowed that phrase, the rising sun from heaven. It comes from various Old Testament prophecies. By the way, we shouldn't be surprised that Zechariah is full of Old Testament prophecies that aren't necessarily instantly recognizable to us. He was a priest, after all, of the Old Covenant. And so, no wonder he was, had Isaiah chapter 60 in his mind. Chapter 60, verses 2 and 3. The Lord rises upon you, wrote Isaiah. His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. He had that in his mind. Or what about Malachi chapter 4, verse 2? Malachi writes, As for you who fear my name, says the Lord, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Recognize that from the carol. Son of righteousness rise with healing in its wings. Dawn breaks at Jesus' coming. Sin must flee from the light of his forgiveness. The shadow of death must vanish. But then you might ask, as I do too, where is this light? in a world still darkened by the shadow of death, as we know too painfully. Well, the victory is certain. But we learn something from this image of the rising sun. It implies that the progress of the sun rise is gradual. Have you watched the sun rise? Our cipher group, our 14s to 18s group, when they went on their camp the last couple of years, um, in the summer, so middle of June, they got up at about 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, to all sit there and watch the sun rise. And um, the cool, streaky grey gives way to shades of pink, and that then warms into a glowing orange, and uh, the dawn then... Blazes into the full morning light and then into the dazzling intensity of the midday sun. It's gradual. And in the same way, Beth, the light of Bethlehem's child prevails gradually. It's just a flicker as the baby lies unnoticed in the manger of Bethlehem. And as the peasant tradesman turns preacher, is condemned to die. It seems almost as though the dawn has been extinguished before it's properly established. But nothing can stop the radiant dawn. Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He sends his spirit to empower the church to spread the light throughout the world until the midday comes at his return. And he establishes that total peace That fearless, deathless worship. And the darkness will be gone forever. That's the bright noontime, sun, And that day will never end. See, Zechariah erupts with joy because in accordance with the ancient promises, God's dawn has broken. Noon will certainly now come. And Jesus' day will never end just to know it set Zechariah praising and I makes me want to join him does it you I hope so but we have even more reason to praise him when we ask the question and answer it why has God done this? why? why did God make these promises in the first place especially given that he knew that to To shine in our darkness would mean entering the darkness and ultimately sharing the darkness of death and suffering and pain himself on the cross. Why did he do it? Well, as we answer that question, we start to feel the pull of the same current that is carrying Zechariah along. On our previous trip to New Zealand, um, this time uh, on the South Island, uh, we were staying by the beautiful Clutha River near Wanaka, if you've been to New Zealand. Beautiful, beautiful location. There had been a lot of rainfall, and the river was swollen, running very, very fast. And there was one point where, well, after a bit of initial scepticism, I decided I would jump in. It was a jetty right out into the middle, and you jumped in from the jetty, and the water then would carry It was a wonderful experience. <coughs> carried you swiftly, strongly, and safely... To a beach about 100 yards, just more, down the river. It was the most wonderful experience being carried in this incredibly powerful current. Well, there is a vast current that flows from the very heart of God through the Old Testament promises up to the moment of Jesus' first coming and then onwards into the future. Verse 78, look at it. Because this is the source, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the day spring from on high has broken forth upon us. It is because of God's heartfelt, tender compassion towards us in our weakness, our sinfulness, our shame, our darkness, our turbulence, our fear, our confusion, our emptiness, our grief. It's because of his compassion for us in that that the rising sun is brought to us from heaven so Zechariah is not only overjoyed that the dawn has broken the noon will come and that Jesus day will never end he erupts with praise even more because all of this is given as a gift out of God's sheer mercy and compassion more specifically it is given against the backdrop of Israel's consistent rejection of the living God just think of Zechariah's own life It is given to him despite the frailty of his elderly body, despite he and Elizabeth's natural incapacity, and despite his faithless response to the angel's message. See, God doesn't look at Zechariah and go, oh dear, repelled from him because of all these things. No, it's it's the opposite. God's heart goes out to Zechariah all the more because of these very weaknesses of this old man in his need. Now, I don't know if we grasp that about God in our own lives, that God does not work by helping those who help themselves. That's not how he works. That's the opposite of the gospel. It's the anti-gospel. No, God's heart goes out to those who are helpless. Now, I, does, that amaze you, that, does that amaze you to the extent it amazed Zechariah? So that we, to the extent that we feel the current of God's mercy carrying us along, like those turtles. Do you remember in Finding Nemo? The surfer turtles on the East Australian current? That's what God wants us to know. Do we know it? If we don't, if we're not amazed at it, we think, oh, all right, well, that's, that's fairly ordinary. It may be partly because we're not yet seeing God's heart clearly. Maybe in your mind, God is an irritable stickler who loves to find fault, pernickety, and uh, pointing out your errors. Or even you think of him deep down as a domineering tyrant who basically delights in punishing people. Well, Zechariah knew otherwise. There may be another reason why we don't, feel this current of God's mercy leading us to praise Him, which is that we don't recognize ourselves as weak, sinful, lost, ignorant, and empty in His sight. We think to ourselves, well, I'm tolerably strong and uh, good and wise, and so we don't really think we need mercy, grace, or compassion. We really think deep down that what we need is a tick from heaven. Not mercy, but a tick. You know, well done. No, we need mercy. We desperately need it. Now, there is only a limited use in trying to convince anybody um, who doesn't realize they need mercy of their need for mercy by battering them can be done, but it is not, the, it's not ultimately the wisest way and the most effective way of doing it. Do you know the fable about the sun and the wind competing to get a man to take his coat off? You know the fable? The wind blows with all its might, um, but the man only wraps his coat up even tighter. And yet the sun then steps forward and gently warms the man and doesn't take long before he putting his coat off as quickly as he can. It's the sunshine of God's love, it's the warmth of God's mercy that most effectively gets us to take off from our hearts those layers of pretense that we're not really in need of God's mercy. I'm a pretty decent person, really. I don't need his mercy. I'm pretty wise, I'm pretty good. So the God who made you and me has been moved with compassion towards the weakness of our, frankly, death-bound bodies. He has been moved with mercy towards the fragility of our wayward minds. He's been moved with kindness towards the disappointments of our shame-strewn past. He's been moved with such love towards us, even in our sin against him, That he gladly bore the judgment that they deserve in himself, in Christ, on the cross. So it's like a parent rushing to their sick child in the night. He comes to us with tender mercy in Jesus Christ. And like the parent going into the child's room in the middle of the night, he switches on the light. The dawn has broken. Noon will come. Jesus' day will never end. Let in the light. Let it in. Ask him to open your heart to receive it more, more fully. The current of God's mercy, of his compassion, of his kindness, of his love, has brought Jesus to you. He's brought the message of Jesus to you. So jump in, as it were, entrusting yourself to his forgiveness, and let this current carry you as well. And casting fear aside, let's now give all praise to one, our one true and living, gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the words of Zechariah, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has come and has redeemed his people. A brief prayer. Open our eyes, oh God, to your mercy. May we feel its current carrying us along today, transforming us, encouraging us, building us up by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Amen.